Pete, and if you're new, you're visiting, special warm welcome. It is a really great day for you to come. Um, a lot of special things. Great to see the kids get involved, isn't it? Um, okay, you'll need your Bibles open at that Luke chapter 10 passage. We're going to spend some time looking at it as we think about Compassion Sunday. Now, um, you might know that one of the uh, biggest non-Christian religions in the south and southwest of Sydney, where we're at and where we're trying to um, bring the love of Jesus to, uh, is Islam, isn't it? And a very special period in the Islamic calendar just finished. Anyone know what just finished? Ramadan, yes. Ramadan just ended. Now, some of you might know Ramadan really well. Some of you will be like, what's Ramadan? Let me tell you a few things about Ramadan in case you didn't know. Ramadan is the holy month of Islam, and it lasts for anything between 29 and 30 days because it works on the cycle of the moon. Now, the key to Ramadan is obviously, if you know, fasting. From sunrise to sunset... Muslims are not to eat or drink anything. See, a lot of people think fasting, no food, but actually they can't even drink water. Now, it's obviously going to be longer in the Northern Hemisphere because at this time of the year, round about where Ramadan is, shorter days in Australia, so good for Muslims in Australia. Sunrise is later, sunset is earlier. But in the Northern Hemisphere, it can be really long days. So in Egypt, uh, clocks are actually set differently so that the days can be shortened so that it's not so long. Muslim countries actually get economically impacted by Ramadan. You think about it, people don't eat and drink. People don't buy food during the day. They don't even buy drinks during the day. So prices go up during Ramadan as well. Um, I don't know why that is. If they don't buy stuff, why is inflation up? But anyway, you economic guys will work it out. Um, Ramadan is so important, isn't it? It's one of the five pillars of Islam. You could say it is one of the key elements of the Islamic faith. The belief is that the first verses of their holy book, the Quran, were given to Muhammad during the month of Ramadan. And unless you have a good reason not to, i.e. if you're pregnant, if you're ill, or if you're traveling, Muslims are all meant to observe Ramadan because it was a means to be purified, to become closer spiritually, um, your mind and body get cleansed, right? And Muslims are also at Ramadan, and some of you may not know this, during Ramadan it's to help them think of the poor as well. So Ramadan, when Muslims go without food and drink, it's meant to think of, help them think of those less fortunate to them. And so in Ramadan, that's when charitable giving happens. A lot of Islamic charities will encourage Ramadan as a month of giving. Now, that is, what is most, one of the most essential things to Islam. If I ask you the question, what do you think is the most essential, or one of the most essential elements to Christianity, what would you answer? And how does that essential element to Christianity impact on how we think about and care for the poor? We saw Ramadan has something to do with charity. Does the essential element of Christianity also get us to think about the poor in some way? Is it the same? Is it different? Well, in Luke chapter 10 that Bethany um, read out for us, Jesus gets asked the question, right, what is at the heart of Christianity? What is the essence of what it means to be a Christian? And how Jesus answers his question will actually relate to what we're doing today, thinking about the poor, the needy, the work of compassion. But how he answers and where we'll arrive at may be surprising to you. Because the reasons to give to the poor are going to be quite different to the reasons that Muslims give to the poor through Ramadan. So let's pray and let's have a think about this passage for the next few minutes. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you 
that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. We're still trying to work out the implications of that in all of our lives, and that has everything to do with what we're going to look at today in thinking about the work of the poor, a work towards the poor, and the work of compassion. So help us, Jesus, to hear what you have to say to us through this parable, and help us to think about how we might love our neighbors. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, you've got three uh, points on the uh, bulletins, if you want to have a look at the outlines. So we're going to start, verse 25, let's have a look again. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? He's saying, what is really at the heart of Christianity? Jesus answers, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Now, I don't know if you noticed when we read it out earlier or just read it again, there's actually a little bit of a puzzling bit in that passage, isn't it? Because you're probably wondering, like me, is Jesus here saying in his reply, is he saying that you can earn eternal life by loving God and loving our neighbors? It seems to be what he's saying, right? Do this and you will live. Is that what Jesus is saying? Some sort of salvation by good works, by merit? We'll come back to that question later on. But I want you to first note how important these two big commandments are. The ones that the expert in the law replies that Jesus agrees with. Love God, love your neighbor. Don't turn to it, but in Matthew, Matthew chapter 22, another person asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You got that? All of the Old Testament. Someone once calculated there are 600 plus laws in the Old Testament, in the first two-thirds of our Bible. 600 plus that were applicable to the ordinary Jewish person. And you know what Jesus is saying here? All of these 600 plus commandments boil down to just two. Love God, love your neighbors. Right? So this is that important. These two things, these two commandments, that important. So that's what happens in Luke 10. The expert in the law gets it right. But Jesus' reply to him seems, I think, a little bit too quick and too easy. Remember, he was out to test Jesus. He wanted better than that. He wanted to know if Jesus really knew what he was talking about. Because after all, it was he who came up with the answer, not Jesus. Right? Jesus agreed with him. And a couple of centuries of Jewish rabbis have already made this connection. That these big two commandments and the rest of the Old Testament law, this happened before Jesus even came on the scene. Right? The Jewish rabbis already agreed they all hang on those two commandments. This isn't news to him. It's not insightful enough. He already knew this. And he was after, after all, he's trying to test Jesus, remember. So he prods further. And then he says to Jesus, well, he asks Jesus, well, then who is my neighbor? Now, why is he asking that question? Why does he ask the question about the neighbor and not the loving God? Well, I think it's because loving God is hard to do, of course. All your soul, strength, mind. But it's at least specific enough. I mean, there is only one God, right? In Jewish belief and in Christian belief. 
It might be hard for me to love God, but at least I know who I'm talking about. But neighbor, well, that's a hard one. Because how a person fulfills that command depends greatly on your answer of who is my neighbor. Like, just think about it. Who are your neighbors? I live in a cul-de-sac, which means it's like a, you know, no through road. So I, my neighbors are, you know, around me on my street. But there's also people who live behind me. But I don't really talk to the people behind me across the fence. I only talk to people around my street. So are my neighbors only the ones who are at the end of the cul-de-sac, or do they include the people across the fence? If it includes the people across the fence, then how many houses does neighbors count? Do you know what I mean? Like, what about the end of Glendale Avenue, nearer to the station? Are they my neighbors too? Or maybe you've got to think a bit more laterally. Okay, maybe neighbors um, also includes your relatives, um, your blood relations. Well, then how far removed? Because a lot of you come from big, big Asian families, right? You know, second, third, cousin, third removed, uncles, aunties. How far removed? Counts as neighbor. Or maybe it's wider than that. It's just any person you interact with. So maybe the people at school, you're at school with, or uni, or work. But what happens if they move schools? Or you finish uni, or they move jobs. Are they still your neighbor? Or maybe Jesus is talking about needy people. Or needy people, they're everywhere, aren't they? So is it just the homeless people I pass by in the city? Um, does that mean that when I pass by these homeless people begging for money, and if I don't give them money, then I'm disobeying God? Do you see what I mean? Who is my neighbor is a really important question. Because if you want to fulfill it, love your neighbor as yourself. You better know who your neighbor is. So the expert does this to Jesus. He turns the question on Jesus. How does Jesus reply? Well, indirectly with this parable. And you know the parable. We're up to point number two. We've read it. You probably know it well enough. So I don't want to read all through it again, but keep your Bibles open. I do want to point out four things to notice from this parable. You got that? Four things. And the way that Jesus tells it is to highlight these four things. Number one, he highlights the traveler's desperate situation or his desperate need, his desperate plight. See, every Jewish person knew the dangers of traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. They're not very far apart. They're only 17 miles. Okay, it's a bit over 30 Ks. Um, it's, a sh- it's a short bike ride for me, right? It really is. Um, but it's known to be very, very dangerous, okay? Because people get ambushed, they get attacked, they get robbed all the time. That road between Jer- you know, Jerusalem and Jericho is famous. Um, if you were alive in the 90s, think Cabramatta, right? You don't go walking through Cabramatta in the 90s. Nowadays, it's fine. Okay? All the drug dealers went to the other suburbs. So the man is robbed on this strip of road. He's beaten to within an inch of his life. It says he's half dead or half alive, which means he's completely unable to help himself. So that's the first thing to notice. He's absolutely in desperate plight. The second thing Jesus highlights is just how Jewish the first two passers-by are. Just how Jewish they are. Because they're not just Jews, but he says they're a priest and a Levite. A priest is a full-time clergy type person. Does it for a job. The other is a Levite, which means he probably has another job. He's a lay person, but he belonged to a tribe. And if we, we've been doing numbers, so you'll know about the Levites. The Levites were the only tribe who could serve at the temple. Today's terms. It'd be like a minister, full-time minister, and a church elder. Right? That's how key these people are. They're like the Jews, Jewish, the most Jewish of Jews. So that's the other thing Jesus highlights, how Jewish they are. The third thing 
is he highlights how differently they behave compared with the third guy, the Samaritan. Um, They were traveling along the same road, Jesus says, as the guy who gets beaten up, i.e. they were going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, that's an important detail, not going from Jericho to Jerusalem, Jerusalem to Jericho. Why is that important? Because if they were going the other way, if they're going to Jerusalem, you could perhaps excuse them for ignoring the man. Why? Well, Jewish law says if you touch or come in contact with a dead body, you would become impure for seven days. So if they were traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem the other way, they were presumably going to the temple to worship. Now, this guy was half dead, which meant that he could have died. It may be a little bit more understandable. They didn't want to risk him dying on them and then then becoming impure and not be able to do their job or serve at the temple. That would be the case if they were going from Jericho to Jerusalem, but they weren't, were they? Sure, it would have been highly inconvenient for them. If he died, it would have still made them impure, but they should have just done it out of mercy and compassion. But instead we read, they do what we do when you are walking on the street in a shopping strip and then you see far away, you know those guys trying to talk you into doing stuff or asking you questions or buying their product, yeah? And you know they're going to try and stop you, so what do you do? You purposely go on the other side of the road so they can't stop you, all right? And that's what they do. They walk deliberately on the other side of the road, purposely avoiding him. Now, that's supposed to highlight, as I said, how different they behave compared with a Samaritan. Look at verse 33. 33? But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Now, it didn't end there because the fourth thing that Jesus highlights in this parable is this how much this Samaritan guy cared for him and how much it cost him to care for him. Right? The care and costliness. So let's read on. Then he put the man on his own donkey. That's the Samaritan's donkey. Brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. All right, so there's no hospital back then. So he takes him to somewhere at least that's safe with a bed, and then he takes it on himself to care for him. Next day, he has to go on business, but he provides for his care. Now, what one denarius is a day's wages, two denarii, two days' wages. If you're working full-time, you can calculate how much that is for you. By Australian minimum wages, absolute minimum wages, a full day's, um, two days' wages is probably $250, $300. Right, but a lot of you earn much more than that. So what would be two days' wages, how much it would cost you? Well, that's what it cost this guy. Hundreds of dollars, perhaps $1,000. He doesn't just leave it there, though. He says, look, I'm not just going to give you money. I'm going to return, and I will pay for everything. And he's committed to care for the traveler himself until the guy is well. So you, you see, Jesus is highlighting how different he is, that he bothered, and that he cared to the extent of costing him quite dearly. But of course, the importance of the Samaritan isn't just what he did, is it? The importance of the Samaritan is who he is or who he was. Now, I'm going to get you to dob your friends and relatives in. Don't worry, you don't have to name them. But if you know someone who you're a little bit embarrassed to go to the movies with, because every time you see a movie with them, they will verbally, out loud, scream, cry, go, (gasps) or I know someone who's like, 
doesn't want to go to the movie as his wife because she'll be like, don't go in that door and actually yell it out. Do you, anyone know someone like that who you just is very, very, very loud during movies, very verbal, Will, Will just got pointed out. You're not supposed to name them. None of you have people like that. You're a little bit like, anyway, there are people, you're just too embarrassed to say, but there are people who just can't hold in their emotions, right, when they're watching movies, yeah? Well, at this point in Jesus' story, when he says a Samaritan passed by, guess what? The Jewish hearers of his day would have all been like, (gasps) shock, horror. Now, why is that? Samaritans were to Jews the most despised of races, yeah? Now, just a little bit of background. They're from the same ancestry. They used to be full Jews, same religion. But over the hundreds of years before Jesus, they were so horribly intermixed and compromised with the surrounding non-Jewish nations that their religion got corrupted and the Jews and them became enemies. And for the Jews, the pure Jews, it's a bit like Harry Potter, they're muggles as opposed to pure wizards. Right? These guys, these Samaritans aren't worth the spit that the Jews wanted to spit at them. And by the way, the Samaritans felt the same way about Jews too. This was centuries of hostility. Um, a lot of people in, in philosophy and in, in the art subjects, they'll write and use the term the other. Have you heard of that before? The other? Right? And this, in, in Jesus' story, this Samaritan is the ultimate other, the other person. The one who is most unlike you, unlike me, is the other. See, Samaritans were to Jews probably what Palestinians and Arabs are to Jews today. They're sort of like what the Japanese were to the Chinese in World War II, and probably what the Americans are to fundamentalist Muslims today. And that's what was so shocking in this story, right? Of all people, the Samaritan is the one who has mercy on the Jew. You remember the question that Jesus is answering with this parable is, who is my neighbor, yeah? Who is my neighbor? Jewish rabbis, teachers, have debated this for centuries for good reason. They had different opinions, but they basically came to an agreement. For the Jewish person, when God says, love your neighbor as yourself, your neighbor is your fellow Jew. They didn't just limit it to the people on your street or your relatives, right? Or just to the wealthy or the people like, you know, no, but they meant your fellow Jews. You were limited to your fellow Jews. So it did not include non-Jews or Gentiles. It didn't include those idol-worshipping Greeks or Romans. It didn't include anyone who didn't believe in the God of the Bible, cared about their laws, didn't get circumcised if they were male, because they were the unclean. They were the people who ate pork, They were immoral, right? They weren't my neighbor. Non-Jews were not your neighbor and certainly would not include Samaritans. They're even further away. So Jesus, in this parable, is answering the question, who is my neighbor? So what's Jesus' answer? Who is your neighbor? Well, your neighbor is the most other, other you can think of. The The most other person you can think of. And that's why he'll go even a step further in other passages, and say, I tell you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, because your enemies and those who persecute you, Jesus will include as your neighbor. Now, I'll tell you that, that was not taught anywhere by any Jewish rabbi. 
So who is the other when it comes to you and me? Who is the most other when it comes to you? Do you remember the aftermath of the uh, Lint Cafe siege a few years ago? Or after um, the siege uh, in Sydney, the Lint Cafe. Do you remember there was this hashtag that trended a day or so afterwards? Do you, does anyone remember what the hashtag was? It was, I'll ride with you. Anyone remember that? How, how it started was this. Um, a woman noticed when she was on a train, a Mus- uh, there, was a fellow, uh, there was a Muslim woman on the train with her, oh, just at a distance, and after the Lin Cafe siege, and because it had links with ISIS and so on, um, this Muslim woman quietly was taking off her head covering because she was afraid. And this woman says to the, goes up to the Muslim woman and says, no, 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 if you want to wear it, wear it. I'll walk with you. And she put that on Twitter, I think. And then another woman took to Twitter in response and wrote publicly, if you regularly take the bus between Kuji and Martin Place and you wear religious attire and don't feel safe alone, I'll ride with you. And that's how the whole hashtag started, I'll ride with you. Now that is a good example, isn't it? At that time, particularly of how people were feeling about Muslims, fear, maybe hatred. I'll ride with you as saying, you are the other to me, but I will still love you. And I'll tell you, this is not nearly, that was not nearly as revolutionary as Jesus' story either of the Samaritan, but it sort of captures it. So who is my neighbor? It's not just your family. It's not just your friends. It's not just the people you study or work with. It's not just the people on your street. It includes those you have least in common with. People you even look down on. That you might fear, that you might despise, that you might hate. Even your enemy. That is the other. And Jesus is saying you've got to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Right? That's the standard. Now, if that isn't enough, there's more, of course. There's a twist. Now, did you notice how Jesus didn't tell the story? He didn't tell the story with the Samaritan man beaten up, lying half dead in a ditch, the Jewish man walking past and showing mercy. Right? That would have been what I expected. The Samaritan in a ditch, but a third good Jewish man walking past and helping him. Now, why do you think he did it the other way around? Why do you think it was the Jewish man in the ditch and a Samaritan walking past? Well, one reason, obviously, is I said in the earlier point, it's a contrast, right? A bigger contrast between the three men who passed by, the first two really Jewish Jews, the last guy, not even a Jew, a hated Samaritan, and yet who obeys God? Who actually loves his neighbor? The Samaritan, the other. But there's another reason. There's another reason why Jesus tells the story the way it is. Because remember, who was Jesus telling the parable to? Was he talking to a bunch of Samaritans? No. He was talking to, specifically, an expert in the law, a Jewish Jew. And all the other listeners around him at that time were also Jews. Now, you probably know in storytelling, and particularly in movies, there's always a point of identification, right, with the audience. I think that's why Pixar films are so good, and and animation films. Um, Like, I don't know, ages ago, remember The Lion King came out? Right, Disney's Lion King? And I was like, it's a bunch of lions. There's not even a human in it. I can't relate to lions. Where's my point of identification? And yet you found yourself identifying 
with a lion. Because it's the character draws you in. Pixar films are wonderful. The Incredibles. Have you seen Incredibles 2? Every member of that family has some point of contact with someone, doesn't it? Whether you're the angsty teenager, the dad who feels useless, not that that's me, the mom who wants to escape the drudgery of home life, or the crazy kid, right? You've got a point, or, you know, you've got a point of identification, and that's how movies work. Storytelling work, and it's usually the main character, something in common with you, usually the hero, the good guy, the person you're rooting for. Okay. As Jesus is telling his Samaritan parable, who would have been the list, who would have the, who the, who would have been the point of identification with the with the listeners that Jesus was talking to? Or I'll put it another way: Who is the person in the story the listeners would not have identified with? You got that? There's no way in the world that they would have identified with the hero in the story. Because they're Jews. And this hero happens to be a Samaritan. See, we read this story and we're like, yeah, we identify with a Samaritan. He's the good guy. Not if you were a Jew. There is no way in the world you would have said, yeah, that's me in the story. And so if you can't identify with a Samaritan in the story, Jesus' first listeners, who would they have to have identified with? Well, not the two baddies, of course. The priest and the Levite, because they show no mercy. There was only one other character left that they could have identified with, right? The only other Jew in the story. So who are you in the story, if you are Jesus' original listeners? You are the guy in the ditch. That's the twist. Jesus told the story from that perspective so that you would know and I would know that we in the story are the guy that just got beaten up, half dead, dying, needing help. See, the more, see, here's the thing. The moral of Jesus' story is not first and foremost, be like the Samaritan and love your enemy. That's there, but that's not what they would have heard first and foremost. The twist is this. The first thing you are to think about if you identify rightly with Jesus' original audience is this. I need help. And I need help so much because I'm the guy dying in the ditch. And I need help so much, I will need help from even the most unlikely of persons and when you're in that situation and you are the other and you are the enemy but you need mercy from someone who will be a neighbor to you and because you're dying in the ditch you will only be grateful and say yes because you're helpless that's what you're supposed to see i'm the guy who needs help before I can be a neighbor, I need someone to be a neighbor to me, the someone who is the most other. Which brings us back to the original question the expert in the law asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, was Jesus' answer telling him he can be saved by being good, by loving God, loving your neighbor, and if you tick those two, then you earn your right to heaven? Is that what Jesus is saying? Is it salvation by works? The answer is, of course, no. Jesus is very clever. Remember the twist in the parable. Jesus' answer is not, you can be saved by works. And I'll tell you two ways in which this answer, this parable gives that answer. See, once, firstly, once you understand your neighbor, as I said, is the complete other, the, the enemy even, then you would understand that Jesus is putting a standard of loving your neighbors that is actually impossible. Right? You can't do it on your own. No one loves like that, can they? 
So if it's salvation by works, it's at least the works that no one can actually ever achieve on their own. That's the first reason. It's not salvation by works. The second reason, of course, the twist. The story is not about our love, but our need to be loved. First of all, that we're the ones who need to be helped. The parable illustrates our need for grace. Because we're the guy in the ditch. We're the one who's desperate for help. We're the ones who can't help ourselves. And that really is what the Bible says, isn't it? Romans chapter 5. I won't read, uh, won't read it out. won't look it up, but it says that we were powerless. Or Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we were dead in our sin. And because of that, the Bible says we have no right to expect anything from the only one who is willing to have compassion to save us. Because to him, the one who could save us, we are the other. Because Romans 5 also tells us we naturally, because of our sin, are enemies with God. Right? As far as God's concerned, we were the other. And yet he does save us, you see. Yet God does have compassion on us, and yet God does get out of his way so that he could be a neighbor to his enemies. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, this is not Jesus saying that we can be saved by good works. He is actually saying we can't be saved on our own efforts. You actually need someone to save you. You need to be saved. It starts there. And so I want to ask you, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're not sure yet, have you? understood that maybe you're here and you thought that being christian is about good works it's about merit it's about morals it's about earning your way to eternal life and well it couldn't be further from the truth being a christian is actually about being saved about not deserving about asking for mercy about being desperate and knowing that only jesus can save so have you done that if you want to know more about it we have a five-week q a over supper thing called fresh you'll hear more about it in the next few weeks Make sure you come along to that. Now, understanding this is the key now to being able to love our neighbors. All right? You've got to get that first. And even loving the other, even loving your enemies as much as you love yourself. So, my final point. Now, we all know that loving your neighbors is very, in, like it's at the heart of the Christian faith, as I said, is really getting at one of the key elements, like Ramadan is to Muslims. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, you probably know it's central. Is it easy to do? Of course, it's not easy to do at all, isn't it? Why is it hard to love your neighbors? Well, I'll give you three reasons why it's hard. Number one is fear. Because Jesus says, love your neighbors as you love yourself. Well, that is radical and that is difficult because I know how to love myself pretty well, right? But if I had to love you like I love myself, then I'm to care for you. I'm to prioritize you, I'm to honor you, I'm to think about you, I'm to be committed to you as much as it's natural for me to do it for myself. That's hard. And to do that, we're going to be fearful, right? Because it's going to be really costly, really costly. And not just money costs, emotional costs, time costs. If I love you like that, and here's the thing about costs, right? If it costs me, then I've got to miss out on something. If I love you like that, then I will miss out on you and you can fill in the blanks. And so we can be fearful of loving like that. We can also be fearful of being rejected or unappreciated or hurt because of this kind of love. Okay, second one. Um, Sometimes loving our neighbors, if our neighbor means anyone, 
it can feel so overwhelming now because now it's not just my next door neighbors, it's anyone. And the task is so big and there's so many people and you, you're overwhelmed. And this is especially when it comes to loving my neighbor, when it comes to the poor and those in poverty. Yeah? Like there's just so many people, there's so many people who are poor in so many countries all over the world and you feel guilty and you feel paralyzed and probably you end up doing very little or you do something out of emotion and you don't follow it up. You feel overwhelmed. And of course, the third reason why we find this hard is we don't know how. Often we want to love, but we don't know how to love. Now, sometimes we consciously don't know how. And I know when people are struggling through particular types of grief, um, the mentally ill, um, the poor even, someone who's lost a loved one, sometimes we, we want to love, but we don't know how to go about it. When we do, we kind of mess it up. All right? Or sometimes we unconsciously, we, we think we're doing the loving thing, but it actually isn't really helpful for them. And that's clearly the case in the history of what we call mercy ministries. A lot of the times people want to help the poor and they end up doing far worse for the poor than actually helping them because you don't know how. Now here's the great thing. When it, let's just talk about the work of compassion. Here's the great thing about an organization like Compassion. They've actually worked out how. Okay, They've worked out how you can love your neighbors when your neighbors are children in poverty. You can not just meet their physical need, you can meet their spiritual ones as well. So let me give a plug to the great work of Compassion. There'll be a table outside. Get involved. You hear more just after um, our final song about how you can do that. You can become a sponsor. You can co-sponsor someone together. Right? They figured out, they figured out how to save you the hard work, and it is effective, and you saw Hilda's story on the video. But let me tell you that. The work of sponsoring children, even writing and caring for them over a long period of time, that's relatively easy. I'll tell you what is much harder. Much harder is loving the neighbors or the others that are more immediately around you. The people you're going to go to school with, the people you're going to go to uni with, the people you're going to go to work with, the people in your family, the people down the street. Much harder, isn't it? Easy giving 50 bucks a month. Sponsorship, writing a few letters a year. Hard to love your enemy. Because it means that those at a distance, like our sponsor children, those you have limited interaction with, right? You only, you only can and you only need to love in a few ways. Provide them with money, provide them with letters, provide them with interaction. But, you know, the distance means you can only love them a few ways. Those closer to you, the ones that you interact with more, you actually have an opportunity to love in more ways. And it often be much more costly. And that is much harder. Right? So who is the other for you? Who is your neighbor? So don't just go away from here thinking, I'm going to sponsor a child. I already sponsored children. That's it. That's my application done for day. Right? Because the harder work is, how are you going to love those God has actually put closer to you? You interact with more, even if they are completely other to you. But here's the heart of Christianity, remember. And the reason why Jesus told this parable. It's actually about letting God's love for you be the motivator. Letting God's love for you overflow. Remember I said one of the, the reasons why we don't love our neighbors or we find it hard is because of fear. Well, here's a solution to fear. The Bible says in 1 John that perfect love drives out fear. Yeah? That's not talking about your love and my love. It's talking about God's love. If you understand what it means to love because you were first loved by God, then that's going to drive out fear. 
When you understand that you were the stranger and you were the other and you were the enemy and God loved you by giving His only Son for you, that drives out fear. That's the motivator. And here where the, here's where the Christian motivation to care for the poor differs radically from the Muslim one. Remember Ramadan? Right at the center of Islam is Ramadan and the care for the poor during Ramadan. But the motivation for Ramadan and all of Islam is a system of merit. It is a system of good works, of being judged by how good and religious and devoted you are. And based on that comes charity. System of merit, a system of earning good, a system of balancing out the books between your good and your bad. That's at the heart of Islam. How very different to the heart of Christianity. Right at the heart of Christianity, yes, it is about loving your neighbors and caring for the poor, but remember the motivation is completely different. It's not merit, it's grace. It comes out of people who've been so radically impacted by God's love for them, God's grace to them, being rescued from the ditch, half dead or dying. And after you've experienced that, how that overflows to even the poor. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would motivate us rightly as we understand your grace for us and what it cost Jesus, the one who should have treated us as the other but treated us as the neighbor. And I pray that that might today and every day of our lives overflow into loving the other. Amen.